I'm Ben Dominich, editor-at-large at The Spectator World, and I'm happy to introduce my conversation today with George Will, the author, columnist, and baseball fan. We talked about baseball, about the, the leagues, about the changes that are happening in terms of the sport, and about the political scene as we go into the midterms. George Will, coming up next. George Will, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. Glad to be with you. So I know that you have opinions about things that relate to politics, but I'm very much interested in your opinions as it relates to baseball at this particular moment. It's been a very bizarre, I would say, playoff experience to see these very successful teams go down and uh, and not make it to the the final roster. What's your take on the way that this season played out and the way that these playoffs played out with the new rules in place? Well, we've got two seasons, the 162 games in 183 days season tests the best team this year. Mm -hmm. And that would be the Dodgers and some others, Braves, Mets that have all gone home. The beauty of 162 games is at the end of it, you can't say, well, we're really better than that. You are your record after 162 games, no excuses. Then comes the postseason, which Billy Bean famously said is a crapshoot. And in the postseason, the question is, who's the best? What's the best team right now? And teams are streaky. Every major league team, there are 30 of them, has 25 major league players in their dugout. It's a very steep social pyramid, professional pyramid, to, to get to the big leagues. So there aren't any really terrible teams. They've all got good players. Like golf. Four or five of them can get hot on a given weekend, and all kinds of strange things will happen. So what, what you call a kind of bizarre is it's very entertaining. Mm-hmm. And it behooves baseball every once in a while to remember that it's in the entertainment business, which is why the baseball you're watching today is going to be gone in six months. Mm-hmm. That is, the shift is going to be gone. The pitch clock is going to be with us, which means that batters wandering around between pitches outside the batter's box, contemplating the fall of Rome or the Byzantium <laughs> or whatever they think about are going to be things of the past. The game's going to move much faster. The ball's going to be put in play more often because pitchers that have to throw the ball every 15 seconds with no runner on base can't throw maximum velocity and then count on 30 seconds to recuperate before the next maximum velocity pitch. So the game's going to be different and it's going to be better. It's not going to be new. It's going to be so new. It's so old it looks new. That's going mm. to what we saw 40 years ago. I want to run through some of those changes and your thoughts on them. I know that you've been someone who has been, you know, a critic of of some of the steps that baseball has has taken and, and some of the problems that have existed in the game now for some time. I saw, you know, my friend Ross Douthat tweeting out the other day his frustration with the the idea that taking, you know, a day of rest was something that could in any way help a team as opposed to hurting it when it came to these playoffs. Are you generally positive about the changes that are being made when it comes to the game? And do you think that it's going to lead to a marked improvement in the entertainment value of the sport? Yes and yes. 
We have a game now where the ball is put in play once every four, little more than four minutes. In the game six, the last game of the 2020 season, Tampa Bay against the Dodgers, most watched game of the year. The ball was put in play once every six and a half minutes. And in the last 25 minutes of the game, the ball was put in play twice. That's not entertaining. Yeah. We have a game now in which one-third of all at-bats end in strikeout, walk, or home run. That is, the ball's not put in play. Home run, ball's not put in play. It's a three seconds of gasp and then a slow jog around the infield. We have the most athletic athletes in baseball that we've ever had, but we don't get to see their athleticism because players spend a lot more time with leather on their hands and with wood in their hands but the ball doesn't get to them. We'd like to see Arenado and Lindor and, and all these other wizards do their thing, but they can't. They're standing there. In, by the way, that last game of the 2020 season, there were 54 outs, 27 strikeouts. It's, it's not fun. Yeah. So I'm all in favor of this. It's, a, it's, a, it's adult reasoning says, if you will an end, you have to will the means to the end. Mm-hmm. I will the end, which is more action and more uh, brisker pace of place. Therefore, I'm I, I must will these these means to that. Well, I think you you make a very valuable point in the sense that the you know when I watch you know the the NFL yesterday, you know I get to see incredible athletes peak performance, you know, in in insane catches over the shoulder grabs, you know, just, you know, people who are incredibly capable at, at fulfilling their role and doing their job. And yet when it comes to baseball, I really don't get to see that most of the time. It's a rare exception that I get to see such physical performance. Do you think that the, you know, the ultimate takeaway, I'm sure there are going to be people who are, you know, going to bemoan changes and things like that. But do you think the ultimate takeaway here is going to be one where, oh my gosh, we are finally able to see the athletic ability of these players who've basically been harnessed by the rules and the setup. I do, particularly because we have in the last 30 years or so added about 45 minutes to the length of the game without adding any action. In fact, we subtracted from the action. Longer games, less action, that's a really bad recipe for an entertainment industry. So no, let's get on with it. Look, I'm so old, I remember and this was true until about 1952, players could, and many did, at the end of an inning, throw their gloves on the outfield grass and go into the dugout. They just left their gloves out there. Things change in baseball. People say, we don't want things to change. Good Lord, haven't they been paying attention? Everything's changed in baseball, particularly velocity. We now have guys throwing 98-mile-an-hour secondary pitches, 98-mile-an-hour slider, don't tell me baseball shouldn't change. Yeah, baseball. no, that's that's it's it's an insane, an insane, insane increase in speed. Physiology has changed baseball, and and what I consider the greatest game ever played, the Game Seven of the nineteen sixty World Series, Mazeroski's walk off home run, ten to nine game. Pirates beat the the Yankees. In that game, you know how many strikeouts there were? Zero. No one struck out. There <laughs> was five. Five six, Elroy Face. Another pitcher was five eight, Bobby Shantz. Now, fast forward to twenty twenty two. 
and Kershaw or some other six foot four guy delivers the ball, we've effectively moved the mound a foot and a half or two feet closer to home plate, mm-hmm. cutting down the time the batter has to uh, react to the pitch, and the pitch is coming faster than it used to. I was watching actually an interview with Sam Alito from the Heritage Foundation the other day, and he talked about going to a a Phillies baseball camp, you know, type thing, and how uh, you know his his experience there was just that the ball was coming at him so fast that he had to swing before the release even happened, <laughs> and and to me it's it's just it is it does kind of feel that way now. It feels as if the speed is just so fast that you you cannot you know have a situation that really allows people to show off their ability it's 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 much more just sort of you know something that is is likely to result in in the kind of depiction that you had of you know strike out walk home run so uh, one more question about this you obviously saw the experience of Aaron Judge this season inspired a lot of people i had you know a lot of conversations with folks who are not normal baseball fans who were paying attention to it. He's a larger than life figure and a large man in and of himself. What were your thoughts on his run toward this record? And how do you think we should understand it in the context of the previous steroid era? I thought it was good for him. There was not a whiff of suspicion that he was achieving what he did because he had the best chemist in the dugout. <laughs> Me, the... Um, Major League single season, Major League home run record is Judge, 62. It was Maris. I don't count Bonds and McGuire and the rest because they were not playing by the rules. They were not, you know, you eat your spinach and you lift your weights. That's to improve normal functioning. You take steroids, that's to give you abnormal functioning. And that's a, that's a distinction worth preserving. How do you understand that in the context of this era where so many different sports figures seem to be, you know, using things to get an edge, which may be allowed, you know, based on obviously the, the rules at play, but certainly, you know, are going into kind of the chemistry space as opposed to the, you know, natural kind of space. Where do you draw that line? Because it just does seem like, you know, especially when it comes to to football and pro athletes, you know, you you look at them and you sort of say, I don't know that this guy is is on the up and up necessarily, just given the way that their physique is at play and the amount of work that they maybe do in the offseason that doesn't get quite as much attention as, you know, when they're in the season and have to pee in a cup or something like that. Well, with a good testing regime, and a good testing regime will always be the good chemists against the bad chemists. It's, a, it's an arms race. But under a good testing regime, as Mr. Tati of the Padres can attest to his song, after <laughs> get caught. So, so I, I think the deterrence is there now because mm-hmm. the incentive to cheat, financial incentive is extraordinary, both on the part of the Bonds. I mean, Bonds was a Hall of Fame player before he cheated, but most players aren't like Bonds. Most players are looking over their shoulder because there's a young Dominican coming along who's mm-hmm. faster and stronger. <laughs> So these guys are insecure. Yeah. The incentive to stay in the big leagues for four or five years with your pension vested and all the rest is, is intense. I think at this point, it's, it's not really premature to say we have closed the 
steroid parenthesis in baseball history. Yeah, I, I mean, I certainly think that that things are looking up in a lot of different ways. So I have to ask, obviously, about your opinion of of the World Series teams. What is your take on them? I also, I don't think I've ever asked you about your opinion on Altuve, who seems to be such a divisive figure in terms of people either love him or hate him in terms of his representation. I also wanted your opinion on Kyle Schwarber, who seems to me kind of the, uh, you know, a classic ball player character in so many different ways. Uh, yeah. what, what's your opinion of these teams and these, and these well, particular Schwarber individuals? Could have wandered out of a Ring Lardner short story. Right? <laughs> He's the son of an Ohio cop, went to the University of Indiana. He's a nice guy. He's not not uh, graceful. He's not pretty to look at, but he's a heck of a ball player. Mm-hmm. He, he's he's exactly what you want a ball player to be. Someone sort of likable. Mm-hmm. And and on the Altuve front, well, I love Altuve, and I hate what he and his teammates did. They cheated and got caught with the sign stealing. And, and again, uh, I don't think they're going to do that again because uh, the penalty was pretty severe. Not for the players, granted but for the franchise and the franchise won't allow it to happen anymore. Mm -hmm. That's how society often advances by lurches like that. that The the ax falls and then you don't do that anymore. I'm curious. I I don't know if you are. Let me just say Bill Beck, a great baseball owner of the White Sox and the Indians and the Browns. He said, the great thing about baseball is you don't have to be seven feet tall or seven feet wide to play it. So a five-foot-five-inch Altuve, when he first came out in, what is he, Venezuela, to mm-hmm. a tryout camp, they said, go home, you're not old enough. So he came back the next day with a birth certificate. Says, <laughs> I'm old enough, I'm just short. <laughs> and uh, now he's the beating heart of uh, probably the best team in baseball. <laughs> that's a that's a that's a very funny quote. I had not heard that before. And it's very true. And And I certainly you know, have appreciated the amount of entertainment that Altuve and his team, you know, have given me when it comes to the sort of unearthing of that cheating scandal. One of the things that I think is interesting is the role that internet sleuths played in tracking down the different, you know, kind of moments where it was very obvious what was going on. I don't know if you are familiar with this channel on YouTube, but it's been a real joy to me this season. John Boy, a guy who sort of goes back and reconstructs various interactions, you know, has has some kind of lip reading people who figure out what people are saying to each other and various moments and the like. I, I don't I'm just curious whether this is something that you have come across or that you've appreciated because it's certainly something that I, I think is uh, of as driving interest among younger fans in the sport? No, I I, I, I have not followed it. Mm-hmm. I do notice that in the last, maybe 10 years ago, players would have a mound visit and they'd all put their glove over their mouth because they didn't want their lips red. Well, that, that's a sign of, again, the stakes and the relentless pursuit of even the smallest edge in baseball. You tell a major league hitter, What's coming? Fastball, breaking ball. You raise his batting average 200 points. So this is not silliness. It's not a silly fetish on their part. 
What amazed me most about the Astros cheating was they were banging a garbage can. Yes. <laughs> the opposite dugout could hear it. Didn't really think something odd was going on. It's not like, I mean, the... the in, it's in, not subtle. <laughs> this is different than Bobby Thompson's famous home run, where the Giants had in center field a guy with a telescope. He could read the, the signs as the catcher put them down. He would... I guess ring a buzzer and the third base coach or someone in the, in the uh, bullpen, which was on the field to play in the old polo grounds would flash it to the hitter. And again, as I say, tell a major league hitter, what's common, it's different. But I, so I don't understand why people said, gee, it's funny. They're banging on a. <laughs> so with our remaining time, let's shift to the political scene. I wanted to, get your input on the state of this election. It seems to me that the this is one where, and, and feel free to disagree with me, this is one where the fundamentals are proving to be more powerful than the candidates at play. Meaning that if you had this kind of candidate lineup, particularly in these Senate races, in a year that was not one where the fundamentals so benefited Republicans that they would really be headed into a, a pretty difficult season. But because the fundamentals seem to benefit them so much, then the weaknesses of these outsider candidates seem to me to be diminishing uh, in light of where voters' priorities are and their concerns, particularly about the economy. What are your thoughts on this? I think by fundamentals, you mean things like inflation and crime. Yes. I think there's another fundamental involved, which is the tribalism nowadays, mm -hmm. which is that, look, we live in year 2022 AD, but we also live in year six after the Access Hollywood tape, which really was a watershed moment in America. Mm -hmm. Because... I mean, so many of us said, well, that's that for Donald Trump. Yes, yes, myself included. <laughs> um, so people are, are now so tribal and so driven by animosity toward the other side that it's going to be interesting to see how many people are splitting their tickets this year. For mm -hmm. example, in Ohio, where Governor DeWine is cruising to re-election, will he because people are reluctant to split their tickets, drag Mr. Vance across the finish line. Same is true with Kemp and Walker down in Georgia. We're, it's going to be very interesting to see. Yeah, I mean, I, I think one of the things that's going to happen there is, I mean, it's very difficult to see a situation where Brian Kemp wins by, you know, eight plus points, and you have that many ticket splitters going for Warnock at the same time. You know, I'm curious about your perspective on you know, a couple of, of other races here, you know, in Nevada, it's been a place that has been, has typically overperformed for Democratic voters. You know, you still have the, the, you know, Harry Reid machine, the, the, the unions that are in Las Vegas and the like. And so when you see a tie race in Nevada, you assume actually, you know, that's probably the Democrat up by one or two. And then you look at a, state like Arizona, which has been very difficult to poll in terms of its accuracy going back. And you have an outsider candidate in Blake Masters, someone who, you know, maybe, you know, has not been able to connect with voters as much and a candidate in Mark Kelly, 
who was viewed as kind of being a moderate, but then, you know, has, has been saddled with a lot of problems given the border issues and the like. Those two races right there, you know, could end up being the thing that we're, we're looking at on election night as being, you know, the determinant of, of who ends up getting the Senate. What is your take on both of those? Well, I, I haven't been to either state. I, I do think that uh, the success of the Republican gubernatorial candidate might be such that she alone produces, a, 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 if not a tsunami, a wavelet sufficient mm-hmm. to uh, bring masters across. I, I think there are a couple races people are not looking at where they ought to. Really? Yeah. I, I, I've made a two-day overnight trip to Seattle just to see Tiffany Smiley, mm-hmm. who's within three points of Patty Murray by the Trafalgar poll, which I think is usually pretty good. Mm-hmm. I, I, Bennett, uh, Senator Bennett, the incumbent Democrat in Colorado, is a good, temperate, intelligent man, but he's got a good challenger in Joe O'Day. Yeah. Well, often when you have tight races, they all tilt over the same way in the end. Mm-hmm. I don't know whether the Des Moines Register poll, I think it was a Des Moines Register poll that showed Grassley only seven, only three points ahead. But there's usually a, a shocker in an election cycle like this. So yeah. Those are my candidates. You know, I, I have to make a bet tonight. I'm going to dinner with uh, my old friend Bobby Jindal, and I have to make a bet with him about the outcome when it comes to the Senate total. And so I would like your advice, which is, should I go over or under 53? <laughs> I'd go under, and uh, you may tell Jindal that I, I first rule is I wouldn't bet against Jindal. <laughs> <laughs> He's a very smart man, so I will, I will take your advice. Uh, when it comes to the outcome in the House, obviously, things are, are pretty certain. Everyone assumes that this is going to be a Republican majority, but they are going to be a Republican majority in a situation where they may not be able to do all that much. And we saw the frustration in the post 2010 environment in particular, where you had that that Tea Party majority that really was not able to do all that much to block, you know, what Democrats had done, you know, certainly it created gridlock and that kind of thing. But, you know, sequestration was not exactly the big win that the Tea Party was going for. How do you believe Kevin McCarthy can approach potentially being, you know, the speaker of a significant Republican majority in a moment where the base is going to want him to do a lot more than can potentially be achieved? Are you sure the base wants to do a lot more? I mean, look, the most important problem that Congress someday we'll have to address. They're not going to address until the lash of necessity makes them, and that is the entitlement programs. Yes. They're 67% of the budget, and there are promises we cannot afford to meet. And there is no, zero, no constituency. In None the whatsoever. <laughs> I'm afraid that two years from now, after two years of Republican control of the House, we're going to see Boy, have you ever seen so many self-inflicted wounds? I mean, if they come and they turn to the country and say, ha, now we can do what we really want, which is torment Dr. Fauci and look at Hunter Biden's laptop, the country's going to say, what is the matter with you people? (laughs) 
They'll lose control. Yeah. Well, no, I think that that's that's a very reasonable thing to predict, and I think it's something that they're uh, that they're honestly afraid of. I think that they're worried that you know we're going to come up here, we're going to try to impeach Alejandro Mayorkas, and that's gonna that's gonna be it. I mean, good lord. Yeah. So uh, let's go out on this. I, you know, you obviously have strong opinions about the direction of of conservatism in America and the Republican Party. I am mindful of the potential for you know the former president trump to basically come out a week after election day and just announce that he's running and attempt to clear the field if you were advising someone from not from florida meaning not governor desantis not donald trump on how to run and win against the former president, what advice would you give? And let's just pick a name, my own governor, Glenn Youngkin, someone who seems to be you know, teasing the possibility that he might himself run. If you had his ear, what would you tell him to do? Well, normally I would, I would tell them all the same thing, which is the more the merrier. The problem with the more the merrier is if you have 12 people on stage and Trump has a lock on 30% of the vote, he wins. Yeah which uh, I think would be unfortunate. I would tell them to look at uh, look at O'Day in Colorado. Look at Yunkin. That is, ignore him. Go on with your life. American people do not like people who look scared. And so many Republicans are afraid of their voters. And if you're afraid of your voters, you can't really like your voters. So we have, we have an interesting political class that kind of despises the voters that that make their life a life of walking on eggshells at all times. No, I I, I think, uh, look, someone's going to plunge in. Someone will be first. Maybe it's Chris Christie. I don't know. But uh, Nikki Haley and Tom Cotton are serious about this. These are serious people, not one of whom feels warmth or friendship toward Donald Trump. No one does. So I think they will, um, among them all, they will come up with a recipe for how to how to navigate this. I, I promise this is the last question. I, for, for in terms of of my hope for what could come out of this and out of this period that we've been through, I would like to get back to being a country where when someone wins the presidency, they do it by a lot, <laughs> meaning meaning they win the popular vote, they win the electoral college, there's not a split between the two, there's no threading of the needle. Because I feel like that, in terms of the the health that it would do to the nation's psyche, would be something that would be very beneficial. And I'm just curious whether you agree. I do agree. And one of the things we've learned in the last five years is it's difficult to have just one healthy party. Yeah. Because if the Republicans go mad, then the pronoun police come out on the other side. They say, gosh, defund the police was a disaster. Let's come up with no cash bail. <laughs> That's well, Self-mutilation on the part of progressives is endlessly fascinating. But, you know, there's an enormous, what's frustrating is an enormous amount of talent out there. Mm-hmm. See, governor, former retiring governor of Arizona, Doug Chris, Ducey. Chris Sununu, who's about to be reelected comfortably, mm-hmm. 
Hampshire, Bill Lee, governor of Tennessee, enormous amount of talent out there. Yeah. Unfortunately, with our fixation on Washington and, and the Senate, uh, you, you may have noticed I wrote a column recently, 49% seriously, saying we should amend the Constitution to say that if you are or ever have been a senator, you cannot run for president. <laughs> I, I, I'm entirely in favor of that. <laughs> um, habits and policy and uh, customs. Mm-hmm. Look, I, I think I think that this is a nation that very much needs to get back to a point where we have we have confidence in outcomes. We have confidence in in the result because the more that we dabble in these areas where it's threading the needle and it's electoral, you know, versus popular, and it's you know, it, people they get infuriated, they get frustrated, and they blame their neighbors as opposed to having confidence in the outcome of things. It's 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 good to have winners and losers. <laughs> the clarity of sports is something that I appreciate in this moment. That's why we read the sports pages first. <laughs> All right, George Will, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. Glad to be with you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of The District, don't forget to subscribe. You can find us wherever you listen to your podcasts. The Spectator World is the American edition of the world's oldest magazine. To read more content on similar topics, please visit spectatorworld.com.